Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. The ESCERS guidelines are, are really quite an impressive document. They come out about every five years. You know, we have a, everyone, you know, there's a lot of consensus documents, guideline documents, but this is clearly the, the prototypical one for pH. And, and um, as with all guidelines, you know, they're evidence-based, but they don't, you know, mean that you have to practice this way. But they did a really good job of summarizing things. So what I thought I would do is to summarize 113 pages and 854 references in 12 minutes. So let's see how that goes. And I really obviously want to highlight certain things. So these are the kind of things I'll really briefly talk about. Definition, classification, diagnosis, risk stratification, and treatment. So as you may know, the hemodynamic definitions for pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension, kind of change, you know, with the wind. And it seems like over time, the threshold for what we call pulmonary hypertension has decreased. Um, to the point where, kind of taken to an extreme, these new guidelines on the right there now call a abnormal pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20 and an abnormal PVR greater than 2 wood units, which was the big change. They also codified exercise pH, and you'll hear a lot more about that during our CPET session uh, in a little while. But this, this change to greater than 2 for the PVR is actually quite a big change. And, you know, those of you who have done this for a while are probably shaking their heads. They're like, well, you know, we see many people who have a PVR over two and under three, and they're perfectly fine. Are we going to call them, you know, a disease? This is actually based on some data. So they, they tried to be as evidence-based. And this was one of the big studies that led to this change uh, from Brad Marin's group, where they studied um, thousands of, of basically male VA patients in a big database. You can't really see that that well. They had, you know, a lot of comorbidities, and this becomes an important issue because when you say, like, who were these patients where they showed a PVR greater than two was bad, it was this population of patients where they went back and looked at um, cath data on all of these patients, and the, one of the powers of the study is the size. It's tens of thousands of patients, and basically, very briefly, what this showed is that patients who had PVR over two had a significantly increased mortality. And especially if you couple that with a wedge pressure less than 16 in that um, middle group, in that middle slide, you can see the mortality difference. And, and that is kind of shown dichotomized on that right, um, those Kaplan-Meier plots. So it did look like in this large group of VA patients that a PVR over two wood units was associated with increased mortality. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that those patients need to be treated or they even should be treated. And is this a cause and effect thing or just sort of a, an epiphenomenon of patients who have a lot of comorbidities? These are the things we're debating about. But, you know, I think more to come on that. And I'm happy to talk about that in, when we have time. Okay, a couple other big changes moving ahead beyond the definition. Um, the classification system of pH that's been around for uh, at least a few decades, as I recall, it gets modified with every one of these, these meetings. And so... For instance, in this 2022 definition, we sep they separated out vasoreactivity, res re responsive from non-vasoresponsive, describing sort of two different phenotypes of idiopathic pH. And then you can see that within group one, before it was like one prime, you had the PVOD-PCH. And again, that's 
just a way to make it a little more organized, that we do see patients with various forms of PAH who have features of PVOD that, um, so I think that was a reasonable change. And then under group two, they kind of cleaned it up a little bit um, to talk about, um, you know, preserved ejection fraction, reduced ejection fraction. You can read it there. Um, I think one thing that I was, um, I think is important is if you look at that sleep disorder breathing on the left from the 2015 guidance guidelines, that's taken out of group three. And now it's called hypoventilation syndrome. So that, I think, reflects the patients you have sleep-disordered breathing who develop significant pulmonary hypertension are usually the hypoventilators. They're not just a patient with any degree of sleep apnea. So I think that was the intent there. Um, and then in groups four and five, group five always kind of changes because it's a miscellaneous group. Um, and you can see there are a few small changes calling out thrombotic microangiopathy as well as fibrosing metastinitis. And, you know, this classification system is far from perfect. It's never, there's always been problems with it. But I think it still serves an important purpose in helping you think about this disease systematically. A few comments on changes in the sort of diagnostic guidelines as it relates to echocardiography. Um, again, there's a lot on this slide. Um, I think the, the, you know, the need has been to, to come up with reasonable thresholds for when one considers pulmonary hypertension. And the TR velocity still emerges as a reasonable threshold. And you can see there the 2.8, 2.8, 3.4. You can see the, the, how that will inform the likelihood of pulmonary hypertension and may inform the need for invasive testing. So it's, it's, it's laid out there similarly in the two guidelines. I did highlight um, one additional um, indice, which is TAPSI to SPAP ratio. And that's something that one or two groups has looked at as a potentially good surrogate for RV function or coupling of the RV and the pulmonary artery. And I don't know, we don't look at that routinely. I don't know if, if you guys do at your institutions, um, look at the TAPSI to SPAP ratio. Um, maybe we can talk about that. I think there's some data, but it probably needs to be confirmed. But they did call it out in these guidelines as a potential uh, thing to look for in terms of ventricular function. Um, the diagnostic algorithm, which is always modified, but in the 2022, I think they kind of simplified it. I, I don't actually agree with the, this whole thing because it really dichotomizes heart and lung disease, you see at the top. And, but of course, in reality, you know, we're looking at both um, and the testing that you get. But the, I think they, they wanted to communicate that point that um, most pulmonary hypertension is due to heart and lung disease. And therefore, that should be the first thing you look for. And the other thing about the diagnostic algorithm there is this early referral to pH center. So before you, a uh, physician gets into the whole detailed workup for CTAF or causes of PAH, the idea of having um, referral to an expert center is um, highlighted in the 2022 guidelines. Um, risk stratification, as you know, is an important part of assessing patients with pulmonary hypertension and following them on, on therapies. Um, the changes to the risk stratification or the, the components of risk stratification are not great, but there are things such as a little bit of change in the threshold of BNP for putting a patient at low, intermediate versus high risk based on, on data. There's um, this S TAPSI to SPAP ratio as maybe a way to look at adequacy of RV function. And then MRI 
as another way to look at RV function in much more detail. And then the other big change is this four strata model where patients who are followed up on therapy, it's suggested that you put them into one of four categories because on treatment, so many patients are still fall into the intermediate risk category. And, and it's a very broad group. And so the concept was to try to break that out even further by going low and higher intermediate based on those thresholds you can see in the various parameters. So that's in the guidelines that recommend the four strata model in follow-up. And this is that treatment algorithm. So this was the 2022 versus 2015. Um, I think the focus for treatment of pulmonary hypertension, and you'll hear a little bit more about this in the sessions, really is on, on getting patients to low risk, adjusting treatment as needed with a couple of big changes in this most recent algorithm. The first one is this calling out of comorbidities. And you, so you can see there that most patients, as you well know, we start on combination therapies for pH upfront. But uh, there is a percentage of patients who we don't do that. And these are the patients possibly who have some of those comorbidities um, that um, may require a little more caution with therapy. And I'll talk about that in just a second. The other big change is, the, um, is at the bottom of the slide where we have the option to switch patients to, um, you know, from between a PD-5 inhibitor and a guanylate cyclase stimulator. So that is an option there at the bottom. So again, this algorithm talks more about classes of drugs and overall approach to treatment um, and there's been some small changes. So the comorbidities, I think, is an important thing to talk briefly about because that's becoming more important and, and again, called out in this particular guidelines. And within the group of patients who we classify as group one, it certainly seems some registries that these patients are getting older, that average age 60, um, and a significant number of patients who have some degree of left heart disease or who fit that phenotype or have what we call the cardiopulmonary phenotype. And you'll hear you know, probably a little bit more about this in some of the other sessions. But these are, are groups of patients in whom, you know, they don't fit the neat criteria of group one. And the registries have shown those patients. And this is the group that was really um, called out as a, a group we need to be cautious with because they don't respond the same to therapy. And these are patients where we may just want to start one drug and be very cautious, these more complicated patients. So, you know, the, the only problem with this and this has been debated about this concept that patients with comorbidity should only get one therapy, is that one size doesn't fit all, right? I mean, if you have a 45-year-old woman with scleroderma and PAH who has a little bit of hypertension diabetes, well, those are comorbidities, but that patient really should not be treated any differently than any other patient with group 1 PAH, as opposed to the 70-year-old or 75-year-old person who has, you know, atrial fibrillation, uncontrolled hypertension and sleep apnea. So within the comorbidities, even though it's in that algorithm, we need to be a little more individualized. Um, I'm not gonna say much about lung disease or group three, but the guidelines did talk nicely about how we distinguish the severity of pulmonary hypertension in patients with lung disease. And the session on lung disease will go into that a lot more. And then there were a few updates to the CTEF, not a big, not a lot, it's still as you'll hear, the VQ scan as the screening test and then confirmatory testing. And then for treatment of CTEF, the option of both medical therapy and balloon angioplasty in patients who aren't surgical candidates. So, um, and again, you'll hear more about that in our next session 
uh, after Dr. Sagar's talk. So, um, new definition uh, is controversial for sure. The clinical classification system is continues. The diagnostic algorithm has focused itself a little bit more, a little more emphasis on RV function. And the treatment algorithm obviously is expanding, and as we go on, will continue to expand. So with that, I'll thank you for your attention, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Sagar. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME, LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.